Hi everyone and welcome back to Other SLP's Pockets. This is Megan coming at you with a bonus episode that Jeanette and I are referring to as Hot Pocket Episodes. Get it? See what we did there? Today we're going to be talking to Matt Parr and Michael Fenn of the Private Equity Stakeholder Project. And the reason that I wanted to have this conversation is because I think it's extremely important that we as therapists, as we're having these conversations about money and what we're being paid and productivity and reimbursement rates and staffing ratios and billable minutes and point of service documentation and all of these topics, it's vital that we are aware of what's going on in the broader financial context of this country. And the United States in particular is in this very unprecedented time around private equity. And private equity is increasingly controlling more and more of the healthcare industry in this country. And so I think we all feel the effects of private equity, whether that's as a patient ourselves or as a therapist being employed by a healthcare company. We, we are watching the consolidation, the conglomeration of these healthcare networks across the country. And we are, we are continuing to be fed this idea that a for-profit healthcare system is good for everybody because it fosters competitiveness and that fosters innovation. And therefore we have the best healthcare system in the world because we have all these innovative ideas and all of these new revolutionary treatments available to us. But when we look at what's happening with private equity, there's a, there's a lot of um, issues that come up around antitrust and anti-competitiveness when you have a single entity whose sole purpose is to make as much money as quickly as possible for their shareholders coming in and conglomerating healthcare facilities across the country. That actually reduces competitiveness, it reduces innovation, it reduces the options that people have available to them, again, both as patients and as employees. The number of different therapy companies that we can work for around the country gets smaller and smaller every year as these companies conglomerate and and consolidate and become, you know, one network that spans the country. And the reason that private equity is, to me, such an important issue and it's so worth taking the time to understand it is because it's so invisible to us. Like the people who are making these healthcare deals and buying these hospitals and buying these therapy companies, we don't see their faces. We don't interact with them. We don't know how much money they're making off of these deals. We don't have any insight into what the actual profit of a hospital or a hospital sale is. Like we just, we have no idea. And so for people who are working as therapists in facilities where they're being told over and over, like we don't have the budget for that, you know, our profit margins are so slim, we really can't afford to pay people more. It would be nice if we had 
open access information about how much these facilities are actually profiting and where those profits are going. But the way that private equity is structured in this company or in this country, we don't have access to that information. And so I hope you enjoy this conversation with Matt and Michael. These are two individuals who have put a lot of time and energy and expertise into the private equity stakeholder project. And this project is really helping make private equity in this country a more transparent process as much as possible. And private equity is not just a healthcare issue in this country. We're seeing private equity being involved in everything from detention and surveillance to climate and energy, housing. When you look across across this country right now and we notice the housing shortage, what we're not necessarily talking about is the fact that housing is, again, being bought up by these private equity companies. And so then you have a single company controlling a vast amount of the housing in the United States. And because, again, that creates an anti-competitive environment, then we as consumers don't have a lot of options as far as our housing because we have a very small amount of companies across the country controlling such a huge amount of real estate. So. This issue extends beyond our jobs, beyond healthcare. I think it's definitely reached a crisis moment. This is something I've been watching for the last few years, and I'm really excited to see a lot more conversations happening around this topic at all levels. Um, And so I think that we as therapists can join in that conversation and we can use our voices to speak out against private equity in healthcare. There's zero reason that private equity needs to be involved in healthcare at all. It's not ethical for companies whose sole purpose is to make as big a profit as fast as possible, be involved in anything related to the care of human beings who are going through some of the most significant challenges of their lives. So with that said, please enjoy this conversation with Matt and Michael of the Private Equity Stakeholder Project. I'm super excited to talk with you guys because I have been a big fan of what you all are doing and just watching from a distance. So it feels like such an honor to actually get to talk to the people and the humans behind the private equity stakeholder project. So thanks for being here. Thank you so much for inviting us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. So for our listeners, I'm going to introduce you guys. So we have Michael Fenn. So Michael Fenn is a senior research and campaign coordinator focusing on healthcare at the Private Equity Stakeholder Project, a financial watchdog organization that researches and reports on private equity investments and their impacts on various communities. His previous work focused on researching long-term care, including for a consulting firm providing services to state agencies in Minnesota and New York, as well as for the largest home care and nursing home workers union in the country. He is a graduate of UC Berkeley and UCLA Law, uh, School of Law. Recently at the Private Equity Stakeholder Project, Michael's work has been focused on correctional health care, which he has presented to disability rights advocates across the US. And he is currently based in Los Angeles, California. And then we also have Matt Parr with us today. He is the Senior Communications Coordinator at the Private Equity Stakeholder Project covering healthcare, climate, and policy issues. Um, before the Private Equity Stakeholder Project, Matt led communication strategies surrounding legal research and advocacy at the American Bar Foundation. 
He also has spent time focusing on state-level legislative policy, most recently as a communications director at the Indiana State House, serving as advisor and spokesperson to the Senate Minority Leader, and he is currently based in Chicago. So before we dive into all of the questions I have for you guys, is there anything that you want to say about the private equity stakeholder project that people should know um, just generally what it is? Yeah, definitely. Um, so the private equity stakeholder project, uh, we are a, a nonprofit watchdog think tank, uh, as you would, uh, really looking at um, identifying and connecting with stakeholders and people affected by this thing called the private equity industry. Um, we are uh, we are looking to research uh, kind of the extent of the private equity industry and its effects on many different types of, of sectors and communities, and really want to connect with those people who are most affected by private equity and uh, its investments. And we do that in a lot of different kind of different issue areas. Um, we look at private equity and its role in housing uh, throughout the country, uh, private equity and its role in climate and climate change, uh, private equity uh, and the way that the industry uh, treats uh, workers and jobs and kind of the, in the intersection of private equity and the labor movement. Uh, additionally, looking at private equity and detention and surveillance uh, issues and most uh, relevant to this podcast is looking at the way private equ private equity has uh, come into and invested into a lot of different healthcare sectors and healthcare companies and hospitals. Um, so those are the kind of things that we are, are looking at and um, wanting to research and wanting to get the word out and connect with people about uh, uh, and provide resources to people uh, who find themselves affected by this big beast called private equity. Yeah, it's a big beast. And I feel like it's a very um, invisible beast. Like the the beast itself is invisible, but its yes. effects are highly visible or highly felt. Exactly. But it's hard to kind of trace back. Like, why, why are these things happening? Like, why do Medicare cuts keep happening? Why do wages for healthcare workers keep going down? Why does productivity expectation keep going up? And I feel like a lot of this can be traced back to private equity, but it's not this straight linear line. So that's what I'm hoping we're going to talk about today. Definitely. And Michael, add something else. Um, I was going to add, yeah, our, and just zooming in a little bit about our healthcare work, we, um, we publish reports on different sub industries of healthcare, and then also um, track acquisitions of healthcare companies by private equity companies on a monthly basis and have um, recently been tracking hospitals in the country that are owned by private equity which is no small feat because like for anybody who's ever tried to figure out like what the hell is going on <laughs> and who's buying what and who owns what, I mean, there's funds within funds and companies within companies and LLCs wrapped up in other LLCs and all these tax loopholes going on. And it's incredibly difficult to track um, these purchases and ownership and all of that. And so I appreciate that you guys are putting the effort into doing that because without you guys doing that, I don't think that the, that information would be accessible at all to anybody. Exactly. And I want to, I want to plug Michael and, and the rest of the healthcare teams work on looking at those acquisitions and tracking them. And like Michael mentioned, we just recently, a couple months ago, launched basically the first, uh, tracker database so people can can go in there and look up to see if you know if their local hospital is owned by private equity or not 
So I encourage you know your listeners to to go to pestakeholder.org. Um, you can find the healthcare tab, and um, they can look into you know all all this information about which hospital is owned by private equity, which which uh, specialty center is owned by private equity, and things like that. And I just want to reinforce your your framing of this discussion because you're exactly right that it is a very um, opaque, non-transparent industry, but with a lot of um, a lot of impact on healthcare workers and patients. And so that's what motivates us to do this work is um, trying to bring light to areas that um, are consequential but um, somewhat obscured right now. Try to help. Um, increase public understanding of the role that private equity plays in our lives. Absolutely. Okay, let's just start with the basics of talking about what private equity is, just so all of our listeners have a foundational knowledge of what this, what we're actually talking about. So how would you describe private equity to somebody who has no idea what it is? Definitely. I'll, uh, I'm going to go into some of the broader basics and tap in Michael to kind of talk about how that applies to healthcare specifically. Um, but in general, private equity is a, a type of investing scheme. Um, you know, a lot of people probably know about like public companies and how you can buy shares and technically own a piece of that company and, and get some kickback from that. Um, it's a very similar kind of thing, but really only dealing with private companies. So everyone's seen Shark Tank, right? And uh, sharks are, are putting forth, you know, $100,000 for 30% of a company. And so they're buying that equity, that, a piece of that company, and obviously getting that share of profits from it. So private equity firms do a very similar thing. Um, they raise a lot of money from different investors uh, into a, a fund, and they use that fund's capital to purchase either pieces of or whole uh, ownership of companies. And they do that to look for profits uh, and very high profits from doing that in those companies. Now, they do this in a way that is not like you trying to buy shares you know, of a company and trying to make some money off of it. They are trying to do this as quickly as possible and trying to seek as, as outside of a profit as possible. So we'll see private equity firms purchase uh, a company uh, or invest in a company and then try to double or triple that investment in only like four to seven years. And then they get out uh, having made a lot of money, uh, but also and, and having a lot of decision making in that company's policies and what's happening with, with their clients or patients. And yet having really no regard for the long-term viability, the long-term consequences of what they just did because they come in, make a bunch of money and then they get the heck out as quickly as possible. Um, so obviously with healthcare, that uh, that does not jive very well. Uh, the concept of very quick and outside profits with really no looking at long-term consequences. Um, so what we've seen is uh, that type of business model um, really leads a lot of times to cutting costs, increasing revenues, which leads a lot of times at the expense of patients uh, actual providers and really the, the quality of care that's being provided in the healthcare system. Um, and the problem is, as you mentioned before, you know, this private equity business model uh, is very hard because of that word private. There's not a lot of avenues by which someone at home can look into one of these companies and see what, uh, what companies they own and see what some of these business practices or profits are. Um, these things, unlike a publicly traded company, which uh, kind of has to report some of their 
business dealings and profits to the SEC and to the federal government and some you know states. A lot of these uh, a lot of these business actions and transactions and investments are hidden from the public. And that's one of the biggest problems with this business model is that a lot of stuff can happen and a lot of bad things can happen. And there's not a lot of ways that uh, someone sitting at home can figure out really what what is going on. So um, but that's kind of, you know, general private equity industry. And there's a lot of specific, more specific healthcare related tactics that the industry goes into that that Michael can explain. Yeah, that goal of um, increasing profits over a short period of time is really central to um, private equities um, kind of way of operating in the healthcare sector. There are a few tactics that they generally use um, when acquiring companies at various stages of ownership. So a private equity firm that is acquiring a company, um, commonly they'll load up the company itself with debt in order to finance that purchase. Um, so the company itself will be liable to that debt. And if it still has that debt after the private equity firm owns, owes, sells it, um, then it's the company that's really on the hook. Um, but they can also put debt onto the company later on after the acquisition. It's common for within a couple of years after being acquired by private equity for the firms to take out what's called uh, dividend recapitalization, which is just a fancy way of saying that they um, put debt onto the company and then the money that they take out um, is used to pay dividends to the private equity firm. Um, so the money doesn't go towards any sort of operational purpose. It doesn't go towards patient care or workers' salaries. It goes um, to the private equity firm. And then uh, private equity firms commonly will take out management fees. Um, and then um, another common tactic is uh, for companies that they've owned, that they own, they will sometimes split them up into multiple entities or take different parts of a company or a, a physician practice and try and segment it. So real estate and operations, it's really common for private equity to separate those out um, through what are called real estate sale leasebacks. And this is where the private equity firm will have the company sell the real estate that it owns um, to a third party, commonly a, a real estate investment trust. And then, so the company no longer owes that owns that real estate. Instead, they're now paying rent on that real estate. So it it kind of cuts them from two angles. They're now paying rent, which is often more than the mortgage that they had previously paid, and they don't have the real estate asset um, that they would have previously been able to um, maybe make some cash off of. And the goal with selling the real estate in the first place is to have cash on hand for these dividends, these payouts. That's right. It's um, the, so a, a, an example is actually, um, is a company called Prospect Medical Holdings, which had been owned by a private equity firm called Leonard Green for about a decade. Um, they took out a lot of debt and put it on this company. And Prospect was, was struggling for about a decade. Um, while Leonard Green continued to enrich itself at the, ex at the expense of the company. Um, the debt was later paid off through selling real estate. Um, so that, that, is, that is one way that they'll, they'll try and regain money back, yes. 
but none of, none of these companies are in it for the long term. So they're trying to come in, make as much cash as quickly as possible, and then exit. And how do they exit? They either sell off their shares in the company or they sell the company itself. Um, yeah, they'll sell the company itself. And so um, stepping back a bit, the kind of like cost cutting, revenue increasing tactics that private equity firms to increase cash flow at a company, um, that would, that may increase the short-term value of the company just long enough for them to sell it off to another buyer. Um, and so that's, they're, they're trying to extract 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 cash in the short term but also increase the short-term value so that they can sell it off within four to seven years um there's kind of a a lot there's a disconnect between the ownership and the operations because of the short-term incentives um so somebody who owns a company with the intent to have it long term may still have a motive to make profit, but they are also thinking about um, sustaining the company, making sure that it's still around in 10, 15 years. If a private equity firm, though, plans to sell it in four to seven years, um, that's something they have to think less about the long-term health of the company. It's more about short-term profits. Um, so it's it's taking this profit motive and kind of turning the dial up on it and there's no transparency right so we as the american public have no right necessarily to demand to know what their profits are when they're doing all of these things essentially yes um really the the only the a lot of a, a lot of the times the only way that a private equity firm discloses some of those profits from these investments are to the investors themselves. And there's really not a lot of federal or state level requirements for public disclosure. Uh, there's a little bit more, um, and, and especially um, in healthcare uh, this year, and Michael can talk a little more about, a bit more about that, but there was some uh, regulatory, uh, positive regulatory movement toward trying to disclose at least some of the ownership of, of certain uh, Medicare, Medicaid uh, centers, and if they're owned by, you know, who they're owned by, um, things like that. So it's a little bit step forward. Um, but yeah, in general, no, it's, it's unless uh, you are an institutional investor that is, that's whose capital is being used for these investments, there's not a lot of ways, uh, you know, you at home could really figure out what's happening. And so that's one of the biggest things that we, we push for at PESP is, um, at, at the very least, there needs to be some kind of uh, incent, uh, requirement across the country uh, just for disclosure, um, just like there would be for publicly traded companies. Um, so at least people at home can know uh, where what these P, what these PE firms own and how much money they're making off these you know companies and things like that. Yeah. And the um, that rule that Matt just referred to. Um, the Biden administration recently issued a proposed rule that requires um, nursing homes to disclose to CMS and states um, ownership and management information. Um, and so that is a step in the right direction towards identifying private equity ownership. Um, but that data 
Um, is sometimes itself incomplete. Sometimes mm -hmm. they work through the kind of multiple layers of LLCs that you referred to earlier. So it can, even with this, um, this rule can be difficult to kind of track down the ultimate owner of a facility. And then this is just narrow. This is just restricted. This specific rule is just for nursing homes. Um, but as we've been discussing, private equity is um, present throughout the entire healthcare industry. And so this this step is a the step this rule is a step in the right direction and a great example for um rules that can be applied in other areas of healthcare. Yeah, because I, I think one of the things that's confusing for people like me, for other therapists or healthcare workers is we're constantly told how tight these budgets are at these facilities and that there's just no money to, you know, there's no profits happening. Um, it's very difficult to even work within a budget that they have. And so it's confusing when these companies are sold for billions of dollars. And according to a report by the American Antitrust Institute and the Petra Center, there were $41.5 billion in private equity deals in 2010 in health in healthcare. And then that grew to be $119.9 billion in 2019. So 41.5 in 2010 and 119.9 in 2019. Um, so why has there been so much growth in private equity deals in healthcare in particular? Um, that's a great question. And I think that recent estimates show those numbers continuing to climb still. Um, and the reason that private equity is attracted to healthcare is um is that there's there's it's an area with growing demand um there's an aging population um healthcare spending is consistently increasing and so this it it's it presents a opportunity for guaranteed revenues um for the owners of these healthcare providers and then a specific feature of the healthcare um, industry that attracts private equity is that it's fragmented, and private equity firms are um, particularly interested in consolidating industries. So they'll a common tactic is to roll up um, multiple companies that work in the same area, same sub industry, um, and consolidate them into under one corporate umbrella. Um, there's a body of research that has shown that provider consolidation of this type um, tends to increase prices and can reduce quality and access uh, for patients. And then for um, hospitals, and then there are also, in addition to the incentive to consolidate, there are um, gaps in existing law or areas that are not as strongly enforced that private equity can come in and take advantage of. So they're really taking advantage of flaws in the healthcare system and um, exacerbating them. Um, something that, so for example, we talked a bit about nursing homes. Um, there was a study that found that there was a, for private equity owned nursing homes over a decade from 2004 to 2016, um, private equity firms compared to non-private equity owned nursing homes, the private equity owned ones had a 10% higher mortality rate. And then there were lower measures of patient well-being, including mobility, despite, decre or despite increased spending uh, 
per patient at these uh, facilities. And that's explained by some operational changes at the facility, um, particularly reduced staffing, reduced compliance to standards of care. Um, and yeah, so there's consolidation of the existing laws. Um, another, another salient example that I'm thinking of for private equity firms, private equity backed healthcare companies that have exploited existing law um, is previously, um, you're probably familiar with the practice of surprise medical billing, which occurs when a hospital is in network for an insured patient. Um, but the hospital contracts with doctor practices or staffing firms whose doctors are out of network. And um, this practice was actually driven by two private equity-backed staffing companies, um, Envision, which had been backed by KKR, and Team Health, which is a Blackstone company. Um, and it's not just that they are conducting these practices, but they're also using their wealth to put political pressure to sustain these practices. So in 2019, these two companies um, spent, uh, I believe, $75 million lobbying against the No Surprises Act, um, which fortunately passed and addressed some of these um, harms from surprise medical billing. Wow. Yeah. And I, I mean, I just picture these people sitting in front of their computers, they have their spreadsheets up, they're looking at billing codes, they're looking at reimbursement rates, they're doing the math, they're figuring out like the minimum amount of nurses needed, the minimum amount of therapists needed. Um, and they're just making these massive changes across the country, like by, by conglomerating all these kind of rural hospitals into these single networks. They're firing all the billing people locally, and then they're creating a call center somewhere to handle all the billing inquiries. And, and you can just see everything from the quality of care from like a person getting treatment in the facility to then getting billed later and going through that process. Like the whole, the whole thing becomes very complicated for an individual to deal with but easy and profitable for a single company to deal with. So one thing I want to talk about is this, the Medicare reimbursement cuts. And CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, continue to cut reimbursement rates. And I think a lot of therapists feel like we need to like show up in front of the CMS building on the lawn and like protest and get CMS to pay attention that like they can't keep cutting rates because it means that therapy wages have become stagnant or even declined over the last 10 years. Like they definitely have not kept up with inflation. People now are getting offers that are like 20 or $30,000 lower than what I was getting when I graduated in 2015. Um, and then private practice therapists are just having to shut their doors because they can't even turn a profit with the reimbursement rates that they're getting because CMS kind of sets the tone for the rest of these insurance companies and they all kind of follow suit. So my question for you guys is I have this theory and I could be completely wrong and you can tell me that I'm wrong and you can tell me what the actual story is. But my theory is that these private equity firms, because they conglomerate and they grow and they have 
an influence in our healthcare industry, they are billing as much as possible for Medicare and Medicaid. And they're billing so much that CMS is not able to pay those bills. And so in order to balance the budget, CMS is cutting rates because otherwise they're just not going to be able to pay those bills. Is that an accurate picture of what's going on or why, why does CMS keep cutting rates, reimbursement rates? Well, you know, it's an interest. It's not necessarily a, a, a theory we've explored, but it's a really interesting question, right? The relationship between Medicare, Medicaid, and private equity, um, and something that we have definitely seen, and you know, could be related to to, to your theory, possibly, is that there are cases um, of. Well, I guess so. Let, let me. I'll start with this. So, there's not a lot of ways to eke out extra. Medicare, Medicaid reimbursement, you know, funds from the government. Uh, they're good for PE because they are kind of consistent payments, right? But they're also not variable as much. So there's not a lot of ways to eke out a lot of profit from that unless you cut your costs a lot or uh, kind of toe that fine line between uh, between fraud, basically. And we have seen many PE firms uh, accused of Medicare and Medicaid fraud. So um, there are clearly, that's clearly a tactic uh, by PE firms to eke out as much as they can from these payments. And possibly, yeah, e you know, eking out more than they should have been this whole time. And, you know, there are some cases now of, of maybe some of that finally coming into the light of, wow, actually, you know, the government has possibly been defrauded by a lot of these firms who were, uh, are, you know, incorrectly, uh, incorrectly, you know, billing services to Medicare, Medicaid, things like that, just to be able to get those payments. Uh, and I know, you know, Michael has looked a lot, uh, a lot more into those, those specific cases of fraud you know, and things like that. Um, and for anybody listening, like before CMS changed the rules, they had this rug level system. And so therapists kind of put patients into these different classifications of how many minutes of therapy they needed. And so I think for therapists working for a prep, private or facilities owned by private equity, they were probably very pressured to have those ultra high rug levels for patients. And even now, if they're being pressured to do like point of service documentation, seeing groups of patients for therapy, whether or not that's needed, um, productivity rates of 80% or higher, um, a culture of clocking out to do paperwork, like these are all different ways of fraud different methods of fraud that are happening. And I think they're just getting worse and worse. And so for me, from like the trenches, that's what I'm seeing is like all these ways that these companies are trying to maximize their profits that are illegal. And then CMS has to foot the bill. But sorry, I interrupted you. Keep going. No, no, that's a great, that's a great, you know, summary of, of what you're seeing on the ground there. Um, and, and kind of to Michael's point too, about private equities business practice of, of consolidating and, you know, rolling rolling providers up into larger entities pe can weather can weather these medicaid medicare uh reimbursement decreases more than any than anyone else and so you know what what could happen is as the as these reimbursement rates are decreasing um there's a there's a fear of that could leave only you know these large conglomerated pe uh, owned companies to basically be the ones to weather that storm. And then we've got, you know, uh, an even bigger problem there. But Michael can can definitely talk more about 
about some of these cases of fraud? Um, yeah, I, speaking generally about how the fraud, the False Claims Act and fraud cases that I've observed, uh, Megan, you mentioned a few minutes ago that there are these um, private equity associates on their computers looking for how to kind of get the most profit out of the companies they own. Um, and that that is really what it is. It's those decisions working their way down to the to the ground level, to the level where um, workers are providing care for patients, but don't have enough resources or are encouraged to um, spend less time with the patient or have um, financial goals that may not be feasible to reach. And so there have been settlements in the past for False Claims Act from private equity owned um, companies, but only recently have private equity firms themselves been held liable um, for these decisions. In 2021, Massachusetts um, settled a case for $25 million um, with a private equity owned company and the firm itself. Um, the company was alleged to have used unlicensed and improperly supervised staff to provide uh, mental health services. And this was the largest publicly disclosed government healthcare fraud settlement in the US at the time, and is also the um, largest amount that a private equity company has had to pay to resolve fraud allegations. Wow. $25 million. Twenty-five million, and the the next highest was a couple of years before that. A uh, another false claims act. A private equity firm and a company it's a, a company it owned had to pay twenty-one million dollars to settle allegations of fraud. Um, in both cases, the government alleged that the private equity owners had knowledge of the fraudulent billing practices. Um, this is why they were held liable and. We see no reason to disagree with that in general. Private equity owners, um, there's no reason to think that they shouldn't have knowledge of the consequences of their ownership decisions and the financial decisions that they make and how they work their way down to the, um, the level of care. Do you have any information or numbers regarding like I would love to see how much money they made off the fraud versus what their fine was. And like, again, somebody sitting at a spreadsheet might be like, well, you know, we billed $60 million and then we lost 25. So we actually did okay. And like, that's just part of doing business. And we're just going to keep going because if we get caught, it's we're still gaining or we're still profiting. That That's a great question. Yeah. We don't have specific data as far as I know, but that that is one of the motivations that we assume keeps this practice going is that you can just calculate it into the cost of doing business um and pay your settlement and come out ahead still but i i guess it's also a good reminder for people listening that like if you are being asked to do fraudulent things like report those things because people the government is paying attention and there are um, there is legislation in place to stop that. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh. Michael's examples are great. I mean, there are instances of, of some of that being resolved. 
Okay, let's talk about COVID-19 and how private equity firms benefited from COVID-19. Um, so for example, LifePoint Health, which many of our listeners will know them if their employer is or was Kindred Healthcare because that they were recently bought by LifePoint. Um, and LifePoint received $1.5 billion in COVID relief money in federal loans and grants. And what's odd about the timing of it is they received that right before they bought Kindred. But again, there's no way to track this money. So there's no way to know if they're using these federal grants and loans to purchase Kindred, right? Um, or it's just kind of like an odd coincidence and everybody can speculate about what's going on. <laughs> I, I, I think there, there's, I think you're right that it's difficult to know how they've spent the money. Um, but there are things that we can see about how they've spent their money. So um, they received that, that stimulus money um, about 1.6 billion in CARES Act up to July 2021. Um, but despite this, in the um, in the first year of the pandemic in 2020, they actually slashed salary and benefit costs, supply costs, um, charity care by substantial amounts. Um, and then, at, at, as you pointed out, they instead of dedicating money to um, these areas or to the provision of care because LifePoint was also known to have a lot of um, facility issues, care issues. Instead of putting the money there, they put it towards this acquisition, um, towards growing, towards acquiring Kindred. Um, but yeah, I, we it's hard to know exactly what they're doing with all of the money because it's not a transparent industry. But from what we've seen, I, it's the concern is that these these transfers represent um, large movements of wealth to private e to a private equity firm just months after the after LifePoint received all of this stimulus money, which there should be some transparency around that. It's so interesting. I mean, I it's like it's the the money that was transferred during COVID, whether it was to small businesses or healthcare or whatever, it just, it, I still don't understand <laughs> how it was happening. I mean, I'm a small business owner and I did not take out any of the, was it the paycheck loans? Oh, the PPP? Yeah. That was yeah. available. And I still don't really understand, like, even if I had, like, would I not be responsible to pay it back? Or there, it seemed like people knew information or making assumptions based on how business works in the United States that I think a lot of people like me are just really naive about. And like, unless you're in the system, <laughs> like, you know how to game it and play it, then you kind of lost out on whatever money was floating around at that point. Well, you know, to Michael's previous point, and 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 we've looked at this kind of across the board. There is a lot of lobbying money spent by private equity firms, you know, to the federal government. They they spend a lot of money lobbying for against certain regulations, against or, you know for certain things. 
against like last year that the big uh, carried interest loophole uh, uh, fight that kind of was happening. So they're to your point, yeah, they're definitely very much uh, trying to cozy up to you know to the government in, in ways that will benefit them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Bloomberg reported that Apollo Global Management, a New York City-based private equity firm, made a $1.6 billion gain by selling its stake in Brentwood, Tennessee-based LifePoint Health to itself. So can either of you explain to me <laughs> how those deals work um, and how the firms benefit? And you've kind of talked a little bit about how they benefit from creating different companies. So they'll have like a laundry company, a real estate company, equipment rental company, therapy services company, and they'll kind of get bought and sold under these umbrella corporations. But like, and again, this is because these, companies and all of the or all the regulations around it are so opaque but when they sell parts of themselves to themselves <laughs> how does that work um yeah that is that is a very good question it it leads us to a, a question we're constantly asking each other at PESP which is how is this legal and it's it's our it's our opinion that it probably shouldn't be. Um, it seems like there's issues with conflict of interest, lack of transparency um, around that around that transaction that you're describing. And the way that it works is um, uh, private equity firms can create and control multiple funds under themselves. And the funds, even though they're under one private equity firm, are typically separate legal entities from each other. Um, they have different sources of money, investment periods, um, management teams, and strategies. Um, and so this is kind of how they get away with it here is that the idea is they're selling from one fund to another, but the funds are still within one private equity firm and uh, with, how untransparent and opaque the industry is, it seems like these types of things should not be happening, especially if it's difficult to um, investigate them. And so, yeah, it, big concerns about conflicts of interest and transparency there. Yeah, and it kind of reminds me of the WeWork situation where the goal at the end of the day with WeWork was to like get as big of a valuation as possible. <laughs> And like it was totally inflated and there were all these things that were done to inflate that number and it's all fake and it's all just part of the business culture and community. And anyway, it also makes me think about like when these companies own multiple LLCs, my understanding is one thing that they can do is load up one of those LLCs with debt and then they can sell off that LLC or that particular LLC can, de can declare bankruptcy, but that doesn't affect the umbrella company. And so they kind of can stash all their debt into one of these sub LLC companies and then kind of get rid of their debt and then carry on into the sunset as they continue to make a large amount of profit and they just don't even have to think about that debt. 
And I know that's one thing that's trying to be addressed by the Stop Wall Street Looting Act that Elizabeth Warren has introduced a couple of times now. And I know it hasn't gone, it didn't go anywhere the first time. And I don't think it's gone anywhere this time. But can you guys talk about the Stop Wall Street Looting Act and what it's trying to accomplish and kind of where it stands right now? One of the main things that the Wall Street Looting Act does is establish joint liability between um, a private equity firm and the companies that it owns. So if a company commits billing fraud, um, then that private equity firm that owns it will be liable to some degree. Um, it also bans uh, those dividends that I was talking about to investors for um, a two-year period after the acquisition of a company and also the outsourcing of jobs for that same period. So um, it would prevent a private equity firm from coming in and immediately trying to extract wealth or cut costs. Um, and it also um, would require some transparency. So private equity managers would be required to disclose fees, returns, um, other information about their funds so that investors could monitor um, what's going on. Um, so this, the Wall Street Looting Act really does address a lot of the issues that we've been talking about around lack of transparency, around accountability. Um, it was introduced in October 2021. And as far as I know, it is, um, it, it's still out there, but it's not really getting much traction at the moment. Um, I would think that this probably goes back to what Matt was talking about with the political power and lobbying power that um, these private equity firms have, the amount of um, clout that they have in Washington and state capitals. And then, yeah, you, you talked about how companies stepping away from the Stop Wall Street Looting Act for a second. You talked about how companies can um, put all of their assets into one company and all of their liabilities into another. Um, I'm looking at that right now. There's a correctional healthcare company called Corizon that recently did something like this where they split into two companies and put all of their contracts, employees, um, assets into one company, and then all of their lawsuits, liabilities into another company, and then declared bankruptcy with that other company. Um, that's in the courts right now. So it's, it's, it's an ongoing problem and definitely something that um, policymakers and advocates should pay attention to and uh, think about how to address. And unfortunately, one of the big, uh, besides lobbying, one of the big roadblocks here is that um, our federal uh, elected officials, you know, in the House and the Senate, from both parties, uh, there are members from both parties who receive uh, substantial donations from, you know, private equity firm executives and, and firms themselves. So there's not just that money being spent lobbying, but, uh, the, you know, the representatives and senators voting for these things are also receiving money from, from private equity. And so that, that definitely is a roadblock to overcome as well. Yeah, I have a very like tenuous relationship with capitalism. Like as a business owner, I 
I think it's great, but I'm also constantly evaluating like, is what I'm offering, like, am I, am I ethically making, or am am I making money in an ethical way? And am I serving people? And am I paying people appropriately? And all of that. And I feel like this whole private equity mess is like capitalism to an extreme. (laughs) And and people keep throwing around this phrase of like end stage capitalism. And I don't know what that means, but it does kind of feel like that. It's like the, the end stage doomsday capitalism. Like this is what it's going to look like is this apocalyptic disaster that's like hidden behind these shadows that we can't even really see and we can't really control. Um, do you think that it's ethical to make money off of other people's misfortunes, whether it's cancer, surviving a stroke, surviving brain injury, whatever it is, like should healthcare be a for-profit business? We can, I think Mike and I and and PSP can easily say no, uh, it is not ethical to profit off of healthcare uh, misfortunes. and if, especially the industry of healthcare, where it, it is so much based on providing care, and it's such people-based. And and as as me, you know, medical providers, are, as a medical provider, you're not trained to make as much profit as possible, right? You are trained to ethically care for other human beings. So it's it's ingrained in the industry there the to be able to care for others and and to be able to make ethical decisions about others. Um, but those those pieces are not part of the private equity business model at all. Um, so it does not. It, I don't think it'll ever. Private equity and healthcare will never connect in that way ever. And I think that there are good examples of um, of this attitude in in doctrine or in 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 laws, um, state corporate practice of medicine prohibitions. Um, these are these are legal doctrines that exist in some states that generally prohibit um, non-medical professionals from owning or controlling medical practices or from employing physicians. Um, these exist in a number of states and have their uh, foundations in uh, AMA ethical guidelines from decades back. And really the the idea behind them is that, you you can't provide ethical medical care with the profit motive in mind. Um, these are two separate things. Uh, one way that private equity firms have tried to get around this is through um, management services organizations, which will provide administrative services to physician practices, while um, in name leaving the medical decisions to the the medical professional but when the management service organization puts um certain financial requirements or um requirements for the amount of patients seen that can really interfere with um ethical provision of medical care so yeah the the profit motive we it it's it's not something that should be in healthcare, and um, 
we're looking for ways to to mitigate it, whether it be strengthening these corporate practice of medicine prohibitions or um, putting more transparency around the ownership of healthcare companies. Um, because to like you said, you you're a business owner, but you to get back to something we mentioned earlier, you have a long-term interest in your business. Um, you probably don't want to see it fail in the next four to seven years. Whereas the if a private equity firm um, owned your business, they would be trying to extract as much cash flow from it and then looking for a way to exit from their investment in you in the next four to seven years. Um, and then just a more subjective thing is that you you're you're on the ground um, day to day actually interacting with your clients, your patients. The private equity associate, it, it's all just numbers and financial machinations to them. Yeah, and the name of this podcast is Other SLPs Pockets. So we're interviewing all these SLPs and they're telling us exactly how much money they make with the idea that with that transparency, we can all learn how to negotiate better and ask for better rates and kind of elevate the field as a whole. And this would never happen, but I think a really fascinating episode would be interviewing one of these private equity um, company owners, <laughs> like somebody who's receiving these dividends and receiving these profits and just asking them how much money they make. And I think it would be like a sickening number to hear and to understand. And that's why this is such an opaque industry. Um, but yeah, that'll never happen. So we, it just leaves us to <laughs> But I think for anybody listening, like a huge part of stopping this industry is speaking up and saying what's okay and not okay. And I think as therapists, we tend to go into our jobs and we're like, this is just the system that we're in. And we have to see this patient for this many minutes a day. We have to do this many group sessions. We have to document. We have, to, we have five minutes per patient that we have to document. And like, we don't question that. And we don't push back on that because it's just the system that we're in and everybody else is doing it. And so if we say something, then we're not a team player. And I think knowing whether or not we work for a company that's owned by a private equity firm is the first step in awareness. So for people listening, going to pestakeholder.org and clicking on the healthcare tab and um, looking up where you work and seeing who owns that facility is the first step. But then taking it a little bit further and really thinking critically about like, is what we're doing for patient care or is it for the bottom line for billing purposes and for profit making. And I think 90% of what we do at the end of the day, unfortunately, at this point in healthcare is to make a profit. And so, for example, speech therapists, I don't, I personally don't think we need to have 60 minutes exactly with a patient <laughs> and like every patient deserves 60 minutes. Like there's a lot of times where we just need to consult with other team members or consult with the patient. Um, and those are conversations that we should be having with our managers and with our team as a whole of like, how can we shift our model away from catering to these spreadsheets and these profit-making schemes and towards person-centered care? And I think, unfortunately, a lot of therapists are concerned that they're going to lose their jobs um, 
or like I said, not be seen as team players. But I think the more that each of us is having these conversations, the more normalized it will be. Um, what advice do you have for therapists working in facilities that are owned by private equity firms? Um, I would echo the advice you just gave. Talk to your coworkers, organize, um, share share the conditions. You're like have discussions about these conditions you're under and um, bring them to management. Um, bring attention to them because a lot of oh. A lot of these issues people think are just a part of the system that we're in, but they are they are ways to organize against them, to fight back. Um, and so I would just encourage um, everyone listening to this to um, have solidarity with your fellow speech language pathologist. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, reach out to us at PESP because one of our goals is to, you know, if you feel like if you feel like you're working, you know, you're in a place that is owned by PE, trying to figure out how to get connected with others to fight bad, we can we can hopefully try to to bridge that divide and maybe connect you with with people uh, and others maybe in your area um, or, or things like that. Um, and those who are obviously more uh, politically minded, uh, you know, talking to your elected officials um is is always a good step uh they may not know just like just like uh, you know us the extent of uh, of the problem or 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 who owns what and things like that and unfortunately they may not know too so even just that email to them could help um and i think and something I'm just gonna jump in and interrupt you yeah. sorry really there's a website called therapists for people over profit.com and for people listening i've posted um a letter that i wrote to my state senators about the Wall Street Looting Act. And one of them is on the finance committee and actually wrote back to me and said, I mean, I'm sure it's a form letter, but he still like thanked me for letting um, him know my thoughts. So you're welcome to go on there and copy and paste the letter that I wrote and just change some of the details and add some unique things that are pertinent to your situation. So that's therapist for people over profit.com. Okay. Sorry, Matt. No, that's amazing. And, and it, and it doesn't just have to be federal, you know, elected officials because there could, there could be state level legislation too, that can help you in your specific state. Um, so even your local state Senator, state representative, um, you know, things like that. And, and I think one of the other uh, groups that it'd be gr it's great to reach out to um, because they really don't hear from a lot of people are, the uh, really kind of the, the hidden funders of a lot of this uh, madness. And that is state uh, public pension funds, uh, as well as uh, large university endowments. So large, so, you know, we, we talked about all this money that, that private equity uses to invest and like, where do they get this? Well, they get this money, uh, not from some, you know, someone at home uh, who can't really, who's not legally yet allowed to invest in private equity, but through, really rich uh, people across the country, as well as public pension funds and university endowments. And so um, you could, if you work for maybe a public, uh, you know, like a state health system, you could have your, uh, uh, your state public pension fund could be investing in private equity. Um, and it could be basically uh, funding hundreds of millions of dollars of capital to a private equity firm that's then investing in a, into a hospital uh, that you work at or near you and obviously declining the care of that hospital. So 
Um, that's something to look into. Uh, you know, things like um, California uh, public employee retirement system uh, handles hundreds of millions of dollars of public employees uh, retirement funds, and they invest that money. And part of that investment is in private equity uh, funds and things like that. And so part of what we do at PESP as well is try to interact with those pension funds and say, hey, do you know what's happening with that money you're investing? Like, we know you want to get a good return on your investment for your the workers across the state. Um, but do you actually know where that, you know, what, what's happening with that money? And a lot of times they just don't. And so a, a simple email uh, or a phone call to to these, uh, you know, to your your alma maters uh, about their endowment, or maybe if you are in a, a public uh, pension fund system, or or your a family member is, you know, either a lot of times Americans are either in one of these or know somebody who's in one of these funds. Um, an email or a call could just educate them, and a lot of times what we found is that they just don't know uh, where this money is going and and where. And what it's being used for and the consequences of it, because uh, the PE firms just won't tell them. So that's a, in, uh, another simple way of, of, you know, trying to maybe push back a little bit that that uh, is a good avenue for folks. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it gets back to my conflict with capitalism. It's like we live in a system where we all are required like if we want to have any kind of quality of life after we stop working, like we have to have a retirement plan. We have to invest. All companies in business in the United States have to invest. <laughs> it's just how the system works and that's how we make money and that's how we're able to retire. And like, because it's the system we're in, we can't just like burn it down. <laughs> like we're done with this. Um, but it does seem like it's just too easy for fraud to happen and for these types of out of control profit profiting schemes to take root and then not only take root but then like everybody else leans on them or needs them in order to survive because then we all become interconnected in this crazy capitalistic web <laughs> um but i think the more that we're all aware of what's going on the less likely those things are going to happen Absolutely. The more light we shine on these dark corners of capitalism, the less likely they are to um, replicate themselves in other areas. So uh, uh, have discussions like this, uh, read about private equity, continue learning about it, talk about it with your friends, family. Um, but I just want to repeat that question that we're always asking each other is, how is this legal? And it's because people don't know about it. Um, we live in a democratic system and if enough people fight back against this, then I think that, um, I think we can do something about it. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. Is there anything else that you wanna add that we didn't get to talk about? Uh, no, I think, uh, you know, I think that's it. You keep tuning into our website. We can, you know, we're trying to provide resources uh, uh, so some folks on staff, including Michael, are really uh, diving into the the different model federal and state policies that that people can propose to help with this. Besides just kind of the, the disclosure and regulatory stuff we've talked about, there's a lot of creative things that uh, we're trying to get uh, political leaders uh, on board with uh, to try to chip 
just slowly chip away at, at, at the beast of private equity. So, you know, stay tuned um, on, on some of that stuff. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, different ways that we're going to try to try to attack this a lot of different angles. It's a lot of work to do. Um, thank you for what you're doing because it's not just healthcare. It's, um, and it's everything, right? Like I'm thinking of retail is a huge issue right now with private equity. And we're seeing mm -hmm. the effects of that, like <laughs> a lot of stores being closed or run to the ground. Um, what other areas are you working in? Healthcare, retail, uh, climate, housing. housing. Yeah. Well, right now, one the, the largest uh, landlord in the country um, is Blackstone, which is a investment and PE firm. And they own a, a huge amount of, you know, rentals, single family rentals across the country, uh, all from this one firm. Yeah. Yeah. And housing has become a crisis pretty much in every city across exactly. the country. And there's reasons for that. But then like the thing is we blame COVID or we blame a shortage of workers or a shortage of new housing being built. But like at the end of the day, a huge part of that is private equity. <laughs> it's just in the background, just happily do, 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 like making billions of dollars while we all are like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> exactly. Private equity knows uh, how to use situations, uh, you know, for the benefit. And really it comes, I think it comes down to, if you see private equity wanting to do something, uh, you know, you see that in the news or you see them wanting to buy something, there's a really good chance they know they're going to make some money off of that because that's the only reason why they're, they're going to enter some kind of deal or anything is they have a pretty good idea they're going to extract some some good good amount of money from that situation. And the same dynamics play out across all of these industries. They're looking to increase cash flow by cutting costs and increasing revenues, whatever that looks like, whether it be in housing, healthcare, climate, retail. It's the it's the same process of um, capitalism in hyperdrive. Yeah. Yeah. And I remain hopeful. Like, I think we're all waking up to this reality. I think the work that you guys are doing at the Private Equity Stakeholder Project is making it accessible to people. And my hope is that in a few years down the road, however long it takes, we're going to look back and be like, gosh, remember that horrible time where we were all kind of struggling under the reign of private equity, but things kind of have come back to a more balanced position. That's what I hope for the future. So thank you guys so much for your time. Thank you for all you're doing um, to bring light to these issues. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much, Megan. Yeah, thank you. And thank you, you know, kudos to you as well for having, you know, for being another person to focus on, you know, this issue, um, and you're you're contributing to uh, just the public dialogue. And like you said, a lot of hope we're going to get there. You and your listeners are part of the movement. Awesome. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. And if you like this show, please give it a five-star review and a written review that helps bump it up in the podcast app so that other SLPs can find us more easily. Also, please share this episode and other episodes with your colleagues. The more of us that are having these conversations, the better. If you want to contact me and Jeanette, you can reach us at hello at otherslpspockets.com. And you can also find us on Instagram 
at other SLPs pockets. And we will be back on Monday with another episode following our usual format of interviewing SLPs and asking them direct questions about money so we can all be more informed and negotiate better salaries. Thanks everybody.